It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome in to the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. Although, as it's been for the last uh, three months or so, we're not really with each other. I'm in my home, and he's in his home, and that's the beauty of technology today. Uh, we, we don't need a landline. We don't, we, we've got this little fancy computer thing and some nice-looking microphone, and uh, it, it, it comes off in, in some level of professionalism. I, I don't know what that might be. but uh, you, know, you know, oddly we, enough, this might be the longest we've gone without any technical difficulties while recording. It's <laughs> a good point, too. I mean, the quarantine but, started. I will say you are at the mercy of connections and uh, sounds and uh, just occasionally a, a mishap here and there. So, yeah, I mean, it, it happens. I, I, you just got to live with it, right? Absolutely. All right, we got a lot to get to. Uh, from what I've been told by Rick, we've got some good questions at the end uh, in the Ask Skinny Anything segment. So, uh, without further ado, take it away, brother. Yeah, uh, peeking at those, there's one that stood out to me. I'm interested to hear what you're going to come up for with it. But we'll start with baseball, the Major League Baseball Players Association made its latest pitch to the MLB Tuesday night, proposing an 89-game season with full prorated salaries and an expanded playoff field of 16 teams for 2020 and 2021. That came a day after the league proposed a 76-game season with players getting 75% of their prorated salaries. The two sides have started to agree on certain details, such as the expanded playoff field, but they remain far apart when it comes to money. Skinny, where do we stand after a full month of negotiations between Major League Baseball and the Players Association at this point? Well, the, the players sound like they're pretty firm and they're not going to do anything other than prorated money and they want to do it for as many games as possible, and I, and I get that. So they've come off the 114 games and now we're down to 89. The owners, though, I, and that's where we're at here is the trust factor. The owners you know, swear that they're better off not playing games this year, which they don't want to do because they want to have some kind of a season, um, that they would lose a, a ton of money, and, and maybe they will. Maybe I have to take them at their word. The problem is the players don't. So we're at that impasse where – I don't think there's a – I mean, the, the, the owners are, are proposing 76 games, but that is at a, a, a less than prorated salary. It's at, at roughly 75% of the prorated salary. Right. I mean, do we, and, do, and to do, be clear, do, that's, that's them already cutting their salaries more than by 50% because right. you're playing less than half a season. And then the owners want them to take only 75% of that 50%. Yeah, I, I, I think what we're going to end up with is the impasse of MLB can can unilaterally or Rob Manford can just say, okay, I, I can do this, and the players have to have to do it. They can do some different things. But I, th- I think we're going to come to a 50-game season of prorated money, and both sides are going to have animosity towards another as we head into one more year before you have to get a new collective bargaining agreement. I, it's a terrible place to be, and both sides are to blame. I know everybody wants to point the fingers at the owners. I'm pointing just as much as the players, too. Well, I, I think what – I think you're right. I think what's happening here is becoming very clear. As they continue to go back and forth and neither side is coming off it, um, their position, the Players Union's new plan, which included the shorter schedule of 89 games, it's going to cost about $2.2 billion for the owners and salaries, right? Yes. The offer the Major League Baseball came back with, with the 76-game season and the 75% prorated salaries, would cost just under $1.3 billion but only $1 billion was guaranteed because that was contingent on the postseason's completion and right, all that. Right, So, I mean, when you're talking about they're about $1.2 billion apart, it, mathematically, that, that probably isn't going to happen. But if they end up playing just the 50-game schedule with full prorated salaries, it comes out to about $1.2 billion. So yeah, that puts right. them right it's with like, what, right. what exactly. they're offering. So they're just going to continue to play this out, not budge at all, until we get down to that last possible second where it's like, hey, we've got a 50-game season or we just can't have a season, period. And then that's what everyone will end up doing. Otherwise, yeah, and, 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 and I think the decision on the 50-game season, you've still got another week or two maybe of negotiation. But, I, I mean, it, it, we're, you know, by the end of this week, you're at the middle of – literally at the middle of June – um, even if you get something done early next week, there's some logistics that are going to take place. I mean, you're still then looking at a late July start date, and baseball is pretty firm. It wants the season done September 27th uh, in case another wave of COVID comes around so they can get the playoffs in. So I, I, think, I think even best-case scenario, you're looking at a 50-game season at this point. Yeah, I, I don't see a way around that. I do think we will see baseball this year. I'm, I'm feeling more and more confident that we will see baseball simply because – no one is coming off their position, which makes me feel like the owners know exactly what's going to happen. They're going to basically get their way, maybe spend about you know a, a quarter of a billion or less more than they wanted to, and that's how it'll be, a 50-game schedule with prorated salaries. 
And, and if you start August 1st, I just feel you get swallowed up by the NBA. I mean, I, I think there'll be serious, significant more buzz of the NBA restarting at that point. The NFL continues to march forward towards a normal starting point. I, I think baseball just gets swallowed whole. And if it gets swallowed whole this year because both sides have animosity towards each other, um, I, I really feel apathy from fan bases. I, it's funny, Rick, as much as we've talked about we want baseball back, I'm not exactly dying for it to come back. I, and I think there's what a lot of people are. It's like, yeah, you want to come back, come back. If not, we're okay. We, we, we'll live. I think both sides have severely, severely underestimated how many people really wanted baseball back a couple weeks ago or wanted a decision that right. baseball was going to be back a couple right. weeks ago. The fact right. that we're past that and we now know when other sports are coming back already, yeah, I think a lot of people have said, I'm tired of you guys. I've moved on. You act like children in the media when you negotiate with each other. I mean, just compare what happened between the NBA and, and NBA owners and the commissioner versus what's going on with Major League Baseball. I mean, it's like watching professionals at work versus watching school children fighting on the playground, and it, it, neither side comes out a winner when it comes to baseball. Yet on basketball side, they're going to be back to playing, and not everybody got what they want, but everyone looks good, the PR worked well, and they're going to be back playing as soon as possible. So I, I just don't understand – why baseball always seems to end up in this position when it comes to the players and the owners. And I mean, you, you brought it up. It's because there's a huge lack of trust, but I just don't understand yes. how you repair it and get to a point where, you know, some of the other professional sports leagues have gotten to And I mean, is it just simply the fact that baseball doesn't have the salary cap? Is that the big dividing issue? I think it is, um, and and I, you know, look, I can't blame the players at this point. I wouldn't want one either, but if I'm the owners, and the owners, the owners have always needed one because there's always three to five teams that just the equity of them um, is is greater than the rest, and you you can see it year to year, whether it be at the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, they don't always win because some teams play do do smarter things with their dollars, but they get more chances at at, at the swing at it. So there, there's such an inequity there. I, I will say this: I, I'm I'm you know I'm in my mid 50s, so I'm in that demographic where where I grew up, where baseball was the main sport, and it was slowly getting passed by football, but it really wasn't passed at the point where I was a a kid. So baseball was my sport, and I'm really at the stage now where. If it comes back while I watch, yeah, I'm not going to be that person who goes, I'll never go again. But I, I, I mean, I don't miss you. I don't miss it. It's not, it's not really hurting me. And you're going to get to the point where these younger fans are going to simply say, I don't know what you guys are fighting about, but I, I, don't, I, I like something else. I don't like your sport. And, and, and the problem is now, if you're going to squeeze my demographic out and the younger demographic doesn't care about you, what's your demo? Who's your demo? Yeah, well, I, th I think it's very clear already that the younger demographic is very selective. I mean, it, it's a small percentage in terms of who cares about Major League Baseball. So you're right. If you're squeezing out this older generation quicker than expected, you're going to be in some real trouble over the next decade as you tr try to evolve and progress as a sport. I said it on Twitter the other day. The Major League Baseball wants to be the NHL so bad. They want to be completely irrelevant. They, stri right. they strive so hard. To, to be meaningless in, in the national landscape in terms of the conversation, in terms of social media, in terms of having fans. I mean, it, it's really sad to see the way the game is handled from, from the owners um, to the commissioner, just all the way around. It's embarrassing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. All right, let's switch gears here, Skinny. Former Bengals standout cornerback Ken Riley passed away over the weekend. Riley, who was 72 years old, played for the Bengals from 1969 to 1983 after being selected by the team in the sixth round of the 1969 draft out of Florida A&M, where he played quarterback. His 65 interceptions are not only the most in Bengals history, but are the fifth highest total in NFL history. You followed up Riley's death with a column this week on Local12.com about the Bengals' lack of a Hall of Fame or Ring of Honor or anything that honors their former greats. I recommend people go check that out. But I asked you now on this podcast to make the case for why the Bengals should start their ring of honor or whatever they're going to call it sooner rather than later. Yeah, because I think eventually they will. And Mike Brown, to his credit, has admitted. In fact, I went back and dug up some quotes from some stories I wrote, one of them back in 2015, where he said, yeah, you know, I, I just, I, we, we just don't look back at our history the way we probably should, and that's my fault, and maybe the next person that comes along will do better. And uh, it almost sounded like it's just not going to happen on my watch. It's going to have to happen after I'm dead and gone, and as much as we don't like Mike Brown, nobody roots for anybody to die. So, um, But I think that's telling that he doesn't want it done on his watch for whatever reason, and I, I, there's never been a sound reason, and he's never really given a sound reason for why not. 
So my fear is that, that as he continues to be alive, the guys who would go in that initial ring of honor slowly but surely are dying away themselves. Um, I put together a list of 10, Rick, and you can disagree with it. That's fine. This is my list of 10. And I think most people would agree with at least eight of my 10, maybe even nine of my 10. Um, so you can make a case for somebody else. But I'll, I'll give you the list, and, and I'll tell you why the list is important. Paul Brown would be in it. Um, this would be the initial ring of honor, 10, 10 inductees. You can do 15. You can do whatever, but I did 10. Paul Brown, the founder and, and, and first coach. Forrest Gregg, the first Super Bowl coach. Sam Weiss, who took the team to the Super Bowl. Ken Riley would be in it, not just because Ken died. Ken is arguably, there's an argument for him being in the Hall of Fame. Uh, so he'd certainly be in the Ring of Honor. Anthony Munoz, Ken Anderson, Isaac Curtis, um, Chad Johnson, Bob Johnson, and I'm drawing a blank on, on one. Oh, Lamar Parrish. Lamar Parrish, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so out of that 10, four already dead. Paul Brown died in 1991. Three, though, have died in the last 14 months. Forrest Gregg died last April. Sam Weiss died in January. And Ken Riley just died over the weekend. That leaves six alive. And of the six alive, three are already in their 70s. Bob Johnson, 74. Parrish is 72. Ken Anderson, 71. And Isaac Curtis, who still looks ageless, but he'll turn 70 this fall. That, that's four of the other six are getting into their 70s. And look, lifespans hopefully continue to, to evolve and expand as my life goes on. But let's face it, time's running out on all those guys. I just don't want it to be 10 years from now and three more of those guys are dead or four more of those guys are dead. And your initial ring honor is, is you're honoring two guys who are alive. That just doesn't seem to make sense because I think eventually they will come to that point. And I, 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 there's just been, never been a sound reasoning from anybody in the organization why you don't do it. Let's go ahead and do it. Ken Riley's death should make you go, give pause and go, yeah, let's do this before these guys die. It's wrong. They, no, look, I thought they did a great job with the, the 50 greatest players um, when they brought them back for the 50th anniversary in 2017. But, man, a lot of those guys were creeping and crawling and looked just old, old, old. And um, I, I just want something done so those guys can enjoy the moment and savor the moment. That, that was a – I wrote in the column, that 2017 thing I thought was great. I thought they did a great job with it. But that was fleeting. It was a quick halftime moment. Right. Ring of Honor is permanent, man. That, that's permanent. And I'm telling you, every stadium I go into, Rick, with a Ring of Honor, and almost all of them have them, I spend 15, 20 minutes just looking at the names going, wow, oh yeah, wow, wow. I, I, I just don't know why you don't do it. And so if we're going to do it, let's do it now. Do it sooner rather than later. You almost think the NFL would make things like that mandatory as yeah. like an attraction at stadiums, right? Because there are a lot of people that will try to follow their team around. They want to go out and visit the different stadiums. They make a trip or two or multiple every year to see their team in different places. I imagine they do what you do. They go, they look around the stadium, they look for something cool to, to see or read about while they're burning some time, maybe having a beverage. I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that that almost isn't a mandated thing from the NFL. I want to go back to your column here. Uh, two quotes just uh, just they seem almost ridiculous to me coming from Mike Brown out of this column. These were old quotes from uh, I believe 2015 you pulled 2015. Them. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's the first one. We have no statues, we have no Hall of Fame, we have no Ring of Honor, Mike Brown said. We do have large pictures of the players in the foyer of the West Side, but is that enough? Probably not. I confess it isn't. Maybe someone who comes after me can do better with this. That, is, that logic is just mind-boggling. And here's the second quote. We have never traded here on nostalgia. That's probably my fault. A little of it is a good thing. Fans like that sort of thing. What I'm saying is I'm stewing on it. I'm aware of the discomfort with our position. Worded like only Mike Brown can word sentences. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't get the problem here. He seems to be in favor of it. At the same time, he almost seems to take a little bit of pride in the fact that they don't have it. I don't really get what he's trying to say. Yeah, I, I'm with you. That's why I pulled the quote out because I, I thought it was very telling that this is five years ago when he talks about stewing on it. Well, five years down the road, guess who? Guess what's happened in this five-year span? Forrest Gregg has died. Sam Weiss has died. Ken Riley's died. Would it have been nice to have honored them in that time before they passed and they could savor that moment? Yeah, Willie Anderson, uh, you embedded this in your article too where Willie Anderson jumped on Twitter over the weekend and was – openly campaigning to the Bengals and and Mike Brown saying and Mike Brown yeah please do this you know I mean 53 Bengals have passed away please before you leave us we want this to be a part of your legacy with us is, is what Willie Anderson was tweeting at Mike Brown this weekend so I mean it's something that the players see value in and that's one of the, the greats I mean Willie Anderson is a guy who personally to me he would be in my first 
my yeah, he, inaugural class. Yeah, and in fact, I said if you added five other guys to make it a 15-member class, Willie would be in that group. So, yeah, he's very, yeah. very close I mean, to me. So, so yeah. this is one of the top players ever in Bengals history that is campaigning for this and wants this to happen. So it's not like it's something that, that only matters to the fans and the players don't care about and they think it's silly. Like, this is something that is cool, and these guys w- would appreciate that honor, would appreciate the respect uh, from the organization, I think, above all else, especially for an organization that at times has been – criticized for the way that it treats its players and, and the respect that it's shown its, its players while they're still part of the organization. It'd be nice to do something to, to honor them going forward. But yeah, I, I just don't, I, I, I can't understand the logic behind not doing it, especially reading those quotes from Mike Brown. I'm with you. And, you know, I go back to looking at some of the pictures from those guys in 2017 because they brought, um, you know, the, the top 50 players at different halftimes of different games. Um, and just the expression on their face, I, I think they really enjoyed savoring that moment of coming back and, and people remembering them and recognizing them and them being a part of that. Um, I, I wish I could remember what the number was of, of those in the 50 that are still alive and the majority are and were at the time. Um, who returned, I think almost all of them. I don't think they got turned down by, by anybody, maybe a player or two. Um, but I think those players came back because it, it was an honor for them. So let's ramp it up a notch with, with a ring of honor. It's just, it, it's just it's so simple that it's – that's what makes it so infuriating. It's a simple thing to do. Well, and I thought one of the cool things when they were honoring those 50 players, and this kind of is uh, – I noticed it because Bruce Kozerski taught me at Holy Cross and coached me in football when I was in high school. So – he uh, when he got honored, you, you kind of saw that. Well, he's impacted all these lives around the local community who are kind of there saying, "Oh man, that's cool." My my coach or my teacher was one of the fifty greatest of players right. of all time. You know, like I think there was a lot of eyes that were kind of like, "Oh man, I either I, I knew, but I didn't quite realize how good he was." Or man, that's cool to see him up there getting that recognition. And then as they keep going through the list, you realize the number of guys who, whether it's in the local community or their community, wherever they're from, have gone back and either coached or taught or yep. been um, a, a public office of some sort or, you know, all the stuff Anthony Munoz does around here. Like, all these guys have have kind of become big figures in their in their own communities, and so it's neat for them to get honored in that way, too, for, for those people that are around them still today to sort of see that. I, I think that was pretty cool. Yeah, I just I, – I, like I said – do it sooner rather than later, and, and uh, I, I just hope it's not going to be too late when they finally decide to do this. Yeah, also credit to you because um, it, it became popular this weekend once he passed away to talk about it's crazy that Ken Riley isn't in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but you've been banging that drum as long as I can remember. I mean, you've been saying that because everyone always talks about Ken Anderson not getting in the Hall of Fame, which you've always mentioned too, but uh, Ken Riley, you've always said, should be a Hall of Famer without question when you look at the numbers. And I, I, I still think that fifth overall in the NFL in interceptions, and that's in an era where they didn't throw the ball around like they do today. Yeah, I, I, one of the crazy stats, um, and I know Lamar Parrish is another guy that I would stump for the Hall of Fame in a heartbeat for. In fact, I actually think, think Lamar deserves to be in ahead of, of Ken Riley because he was such a dynamic return guy. But, you know, passer rating, I know people don't like what it is, but it is a number. It's a number that we use. And today's quarterbacks, as you know, Rick, if, if you don't have a passer rating in the mid-80s, you're a terrible quarterback. Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers is always over 100, it seems like. So, obviously a different era. But in the mid-'70s, a secondary that featured Ken Riley, Lamar Parrish, Tommy Casanova, who was a great player, he was an all-pro and um, ended up retiring early to go become a doctor, and then Bernard Jackson, they held opponents, I believe it was 1976, might have been 75, one of those two years. The playoff year was 75, they were a better team in 76 and didn't make the playoffs, I think 76. They held opposing teams to a passer rating of 47.2 for the season. And I've tried to look up if that's a record, and I can't find it anywhere what a team record would be, but that's got to be damn near close to it. Yeah, you haven't seen any lower, I take it? No. I, I'm sure there, there is. I just haven't found a, a, a metric that's ranked all those over the years. But that, that's incredible. Because that wasn't – while that was a run-first era, that's where passing games started to evolve a little bit more. I mean, you're talking about an era that had Terry Bradshaw, who's in the Hall of Fame. Dan Fouts was just beginning his career in the Hall of Fame. Ken Stabler, Hall of Fame. Joe Namath was at the tail end of his career, obviously, but Hall of Fame. I mean, there were some pretty good quarterbacks, and they faced Terry Bradshaw twice a year, too. So, um, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and to clarify my statements, it's not that they weren't throwing the ball, but it's not – I guess my point was in today's no, 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 I era, right. I can almost see how a guy could rack up enough career interceptions if he played long enough because they throw the ball so much that you could almost put up meaningless numbers in today's game to the point that you have 
top 10 or top five, even maybe interceptions of all time, but you were just kind of a longevity guy. You weren't really a, a really good player in his era to be top five interceptions all time. You had to be damn good. I mean, like well, you weren't just getting a bunch of, of crazy opportunities. Yeah, the, the argument was that, 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 and it's probably a fair one, that teams threw away from Lamar Parrish because he was so good, so it gave Ken Riley opportunities. Okay, guess what he did? He took advantage of those opportunities by picking you off. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I just don't really get the logic of him not being in the Hall of Fame. I think he is an obvious choice, along with some of the other guys we mentioned too. So. Yep, yep. All right, Skinny, uh, we haven't talked about college basketball really since the season ended. So uh, I wanted to bring it back, a little fun activity we did this week. Shannon Russell, Andy McWilliams, and I got together to draft fantasy teams from former Xavier players dating back to the Skip Prosser era, so mid-1990s. We each had eight picks in a snake-style draft, and I was awarded the first pick after a beer chugging contest, although chugging is probably a generous term for what happened. It was rather embarrassing, to be quite honest. Um, there were like a couple construction workers having lunch next to us at, at Dana Gardens as we were doing that. They were just uh, really, really disappointed in our efforts in chugging that beer. I think they said they would have had three done by the time I finished. So, Yeah, um, but you guys were, work, you were you were talking and working, so sometimes that, you know, you got to put the beer down to, to talk and work, right? Yeah, look, we're journalists, okay? Um, and so after I, I obviously uh, had David West with the first overall pick, I'll run down our teams real quick if you don't mind because I want to get your, your thoughts on uh, – sure these teams who had the best one surprise picks whatever whatever thoughts you have so here's my team david west jordan crawford james posey Derek brown drew lavender desmond wells edmund sumner and lenny brown this is shannon russell's team two holloway trayvon blewett darnell williams stanley burrell matt stainbrook cj anderson samaj Kristen, and jalen reynolds finally like we have that team Andy McWilliams has Romain Sato, J.P. Makira, Justin Cage, Justin Dolman, Jason Love, Tyreek Jones, Lionel Chalmers, and D. Davis. Who you got? Who's winning that tournament? And by the way, before I, I continue, uh, Shannon Russell, who you mentioned was part of this, um, unfortunately was, was one of the layoff casualties at Athletic. She, I, I, I love her to death, and I'm, I, I, I'm hoping the best for her. I know you are too. I know for somebody like yourself, when you were new to the beat, there's nothing worse than, than that. I've talked about before, that, that older person that's been on it for a while, and they look down on you, and they don't treat you right. And I can guarantee you Shannon never did that with you, and you've even talked about that. So, yeah, um, all the best to her. Absolutely. Uh, she, she's been unbelievable to work with. She's become a good friend over the years. And uh, it was weird because, I mean, she came on the beat right before I did, really. And so, you know, she, she already was kind of into it. She didn't need much time to, to get into the swing of things. But like you said, I mean, she was very helpful to me, too, even though she had only been there a little while. So, um, absolutely. And, and, and there's no doubt that she'll, she'll go on to good things after this. Uh, it was just a tough situation with the pandemic, obviously. All right, now looking at these teams, I, I will give you all credit. You guys have done a pretty good job, in my opinion, of, of getting some good balance, right? I mean, you didn't just take the eight best players. You took, it, it looks like, what could be constructed as a team. Yeah, I and think, to be clear, I, that was part of the premise. You did want to draft like a, a playable team that worked together. I think you might have the most athletic team. I think your team would have to press a lot. You could certainly play through David. You have a sniper in Jordan Crawford. You got a sniper in Lenny Brown. You got a playmaker in Edmund. You got a playmaker in Drew. You got a, a, a multi-purpose player in Posey, a, an athlete in Des Wells, uh, an athlete in Derek Brown. I think your team needs to press, Rick. Oh, I'd be fine. I'd be fine with pressing with my group. The other thing, you know, I, I, Byron Larkin kind of graded these for us for the purpose of the article, and he, he chose my team. And he made the point that just like everyone on my team, you throw them the ball, and they go get you a bucket or make a play. I mean, Derek Brown, James Posey in their college careers might not have been quite as much that way. Right. Everyone else is a total get the ball and make a play for you. Like Lenny Brown as your last pick, big shot guy, clutch guy, um, good three-point shooter. So, yeah, that's what I really liked about my team is I just have uh, extraordinary talent at the top. The fact that I was able to get Jordan Crawford and James Posey with the, uh, I guess that would have been fifth and sixth and seventh. Sixth and seventh, yeah. Yeah, picks was just to me – ridiculous i was really fortunate of that if that would have been like for real money or something i would have uh had trouble keeping my composure in a draft room Derek brown was an interesting pick at 12 for you because i I don't to me he he had untapped potential at xavier that if he stayed another year and look everybody makes the decision on their own i i I would have loved to have seen him play one more year of college basketball 
Yeah, I think everybody felt that way that was a Xavier fan, obviously, because if you think about the team that he would have come back to, holy cow, would they have been talented. Um, and it was already a, a pretty talented team that did decent things. But uh, I, I thought with Derek Brown, you, you mentioned the fact that he had some untapped potential there. We were still drafting on trying to get the most talented guy. So, you know, right. like no, Des Wells was only at Xavier a very limited time, but he went on and was a very talented player, so he was still part of this. So that was kind of the thing with Derek Brown. I agree with you that he his best basketball is still ahead of him. Uh, but the reason he left, he shot 39% from three that junior year, and yeah, I don't think right. he would have ever replicated that. That was what the NBA scouts wanted to see. Didn't quite work out for him, but uh, still made decent money. Yeah, for Shannon, I mean, a couple of the un- underrated picks for me are the last two she took, Samaje and, and Jalen Reynolds. I, those are two good players taken that late in the draft. Well, I think Samaje is a great value. To me, he is the most underrated player in Xavier history at this point because he came at a time where they were transitioning from the A-10 to the Big East. So he was surrounded by a bunch of guys who had been recruited to play in the A-10, and all of a sudden they just didn't quite have it. I mean, those were two of the worst Xavier teams that he was on that we've seen in the last 20 years, probably. And not only that, but I mean, you're dealing with a coach who's trying to find his way and Chris Mack at that point. Like there was a lot of things that were going on during the time Samaje Kristen was here. And he kept those years from being completely abysmal. Like Xavier really struggling to, okay, they're, they're still winning games. You know, they're still above 500. And uh, the second year they, they even made the play in until a tournament game and lost to NC State. No one looks back fondly upon those years. But if you don't have Samaj A. Kristen, they could have been an absolute disaster. Yeah, Andy Mack's team is the, is the quintessential 1-3-1 zone team to me, man. You got, just, you, got, uh, you got J.P. McCure at the top. You can put Justin Cage on the baseline, Dolman on a wing, Sato on a wing, and put Tyreek in the middle. I don't I, hate it. I, I, I like his. I like his. I like. I said. I think all three teams are really functional teams. Well, Andy is going to win a lot of the popular vote. You get Romain Sada, J.P. McKeera, and Justin Cage right. all three on the same team. I mean, that's probably three of the four favorite Musketeers of all times. You throw in David West in that group, you know. So um, he is definitely going for fan points with this one. The one thing I did think interesting when you break down the draft after you got past like two Holloway and even. I, I took Drew Lavender not until the 13th pick of the draft, but after two Holloway, you really kind of got into a situation where there was good guard depth during this, this era right. of Xavier basketball, but none that like were in that same class where you're going to take them in your top five to 10 picks. You know, so you look at Andy, like he, he ended up getting Lionel Chalmers at 21st overall. Uh, Byron brought up the point that he thought that was probably the best value pick, and I would tend to agree. And uh, we already mentioned Samaje at 20th overall, right before Lionel. So um, a lot of good guard depth here late in the draft. I got Lenny Brown at 24. Yeah, I mean, Lionel on the team he's on doesn't have to do anything other than set up Romain Sato, set up Justin Dolman, throw the ball into Tyreek, and then make an open jump shot, right? And the same for D. Davis. I mean, his two point guards, um, that's a nice little one-two punch on the team he has because he doesn't need it. I mean, for your for for Shannon's team, two Holloway's ball dominant, and that may conflict a little bit with Trayvon Blewett, right? Um, on your team, there ain't no doubt David West is the man, and and I think I think Drew Lavender. I mean, in in his career before Xavier, he was kind of a, a facilitator to some degree. I think he could do that. Edmund can do that, although Edmund can also break you down. Maybe if David's off the floor, I just think honestly, I think all three teams are really functional teams. The biggest concern for my team. And and here's why I'm not too concerned is because I have David F. West. Um, Mm -hmm. And my my thinking is that he will grab Jordan Crawford by the back of his neck and make sure that he passes him the ball occasionally. (laughs) Because that's really the concern is that Jordan Crawford just doesn't give anybody else the ball. And we become a one-man show while we have David West inside. So, But I'm pretty sure David West would intimidate him into giving him the ball once in a while. Uh, That's probably a good call. Let's go to Cincinnati real quick. UC actually did basically the same type of deal. Justin Williams from The Athletic, Chad Brendel, our guy, and uh, Mo Egger from 1530 and 700 WLW did a draft. They they dated it back to the beginning of the Shoemaker Center Fifth Third Arena days, which also coincided with the beginning of the Bob Huggins era. Right. Um, so their teams looked like this. Chad Brendel had Kenyon Martin. He had first overall pick, obviously. So Kenyon Martin, Kenny Satterfield, Pete Michael, Gary Clark, Jaron Cumberland, Lazelle Durden, Deontay Vaughn, and Kyle Washington. Justin, he's a guy because I don't have these in front of me. So I and I didn't jot I, my pen is broken, so I'm not jotting them down. So let's just go team by team real quick, and then we'll yeah, go overall. No worries. Um, I mean the 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 fact of Kenny Satterfield and and Kenyon Martin. Kenny is Kenny can do a lot of things, and it's kind of like what you just said with David West. Um, it's the old Bob Huggins story. <laughs> 
uh, the, the one game where uh, who was it that made the shot? Uh, uh, where they, I think it was Demar Johnson made it made a shot against DePaul to beat them. Uh, the the year that UC was going to be the number one overall seed, probably the year Kenya Martin broke his leg, and they were down in the second half. And Huggins, I think at halftime or during the timeout, said, "I don't care what we do the rest of the game. He has to touch the ball on every trip down the floor." Meaning Kenyon Martin. And so DeMar Johnson, the joke was he hesitated on that last shot because he said, even though the time was running out, his last shot, he wasn't sure that Kenyon touched the ball. Yeah. So <laughs> I think on the team that Chad has, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a damn good place to start with Kenyon Martin and all the rest. I'm just filling in with a bunch of guys that can make an open shot and guys that will defend. I mean, Pete Michael can defend. Um, Kyle Washington, I guess, can make an open shot. Now, that's, that's also Chad's guy, right? I, I, well, I don't know. It, it, Kyle Washington is the second worst pick in this entire draft. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, guys that I, were passed over to take Kyle Washington yeah. is just insane. Uh, but the fact is, you know, he's, he probably has the best team here because, one, you have Kenyon Martin. But you, you are right. He did a good job of getting, like, glute, Pete Michael, Gary Clark, two perfect players to play alongside Kenyon Martin because they're stars, but they can be, like, stars in their role. They don't have then, to be the go-to player. And then you said he had Lizelle Durden too, right? Yeah, yeah. So you got your yeah, shooter. I mean, and Deontay Bond shooter, right. can be kind of point guard yes. and shooter for you because yep, you don't really have yep. a point guard. Yeah, I guess Satterfield's probably your main Satterfield ball handler. Satterfield would be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he'd be your main ball handler. So, yeah, I, 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 I like Chad's team a lot. All right, go, go to who's the next yeah. one, Jason's team? Ju- uh, Justin Williams. Or Justin's team, brother. Yeah, he had uh, Nick Van Exel, Danny Fortson, Dermar Johnson, Sean Kilpatrick, Eric Hicks, Kashmir Wright, Leonard Stokes, and Yancey Gates. Let me ask you one question to start it off. He had the second pick, took Nick Van Exel. Chad mentioned that he briefly thought about the idea of taking Nick Van Exel with college basketball being such a guard-oriented game. Uh, is, is that a tough decision for you at all, Kenyon Martin or Nick Van Exel, or is it easy Kenyon Martin every time? I think it's Kenyon Martin every time. Yeah, um, yeah, Nick played in a weird era, and if you look back at Nick's career, Nick was not a great percentage shooter at UC. In fact, I think his senior year, he might have shot under 40%. Now, it was also an era where Nick had to take a lot of shots at the end of shot clocks. Um, uh, and obviously, he evolved into to such a, a solid NBA player. Um, and I think Nick's the same guy, though. Nick, don't forget, Nick was a scorer as a senior, but but as a junior, he was he was a part of a team where he was kind of a glue guy to a large degree, or sophomore year, whatever, year, junior year. Um, so I think he can do both things. He can go get you 25, but he can also get you 12 and 10 if you need to. So I kind of like that team as well. Again, I think it's a pretty functional team. Yeah, I mean, and this we'll talk about Mo's team and how badly he screwed up his first pick here um, in a second. But the fact that Nick or Justin was able to get Danny Fortson, right. that second pick to me just really gives his team a chance here. Like Chad would have had – had been heads and shoulders above everyone if Danny Fortune goes where he's supposed to go. But the fact that Justin gets Danny Fortune to go with Nick Van Exel, like Danny Fortune may not have been a dominant force in the NBA, but in, in terms college, of was. college big men, I don't know if there is a more perfect big man than, than Danny Fortune for, for when he played. I mean, just a perfect low post rebounder score dominant force inside. I really like that, that inside outside combo. Plus Nick Van Exel in today's game, you know, you were mentioned he did only shoot 38.6% from the field his final year at UC, but he shot 34.3% from three, which is outstanding. Right. It was on eight attempts per game, and that's in an era where they didn't shoot threes like they shoot them today. I mean, can no, you imagine I how often he'd shoot now? Yeah, and as I mentioned, I mean, on that team that he was on that year, he was the guy at the end of the shot clock that was having to take really deep, tough shots, and sometimes – um, you know, you're not going to shoot a high percentage doing that. So, yeah, I think on this team, when he can throw it inside to Danny, and and if somebody has to double from Nick, Nick's going to kill you. And I, boy, can you imagine a Danny versus Kenyon Martin in their college heyday battling against each other in the post? Um, it'd be interesting. I tell you what, Danny Fortson would give Kenyon Martin some trouble. No question. And and vice versa, because the length of a guy and, and athleticism like Martin could could give Fortson a little bit of trouble because he was shorter. But man, th- those bullies that could really get into Martin's chest that still had the long arms like Fortson, that would have been a heck of a matchup. And like Dermar Johnson, we're kind of sleeping on right here because this dude's probably about as talented as anybody in the in the draft. I think Dermar Johnson is extraordinary talent. His career never quite panned out, but that's a pretty nice pick as your uh, third selection there. Yeah, and if you remember, I mean, he was on a, such a good team his freshman year um, that he was he didn't have to be a main option, and then goes to the NBA, and unfortunately has the uh, has the neck injury and all of that. Yeah, I think he's another guy. He, he kind of is that that un, like Derek Brown that that untapped potential where you knew it was there, you saw it was there, and it wasn't wasted potential. It just always felt like it was untapped potential. Are you surprised he was able to get Sean Kilpatrick in the fourth round? 
Um, I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that Chad passed passed on him going back down because that's Chad's guy too, right? Yeah, Pete Michael <laughs> ahead of SK. I, I, Almost I, I, unbelievable. Hey, to Chad's credit, I guess he was doing it as a, as a, as a real GM. That uh, you know, sometimes you know, personal feelings aside, you gotta you gotta make the right selection. Um, yeah, and, and again, SK on on this team. Um, he gives a nice wing option for for Nick. He gives a nice kickout option for Danny. Again, perfect guy. And, and um, that, that it's a yeah, it's a good pick. If you were able to make Sean Kilpatrick just an app, an actual like wing shooter and score yes. as opposed to a playmaker on the ball, the way he had to be for UC that year. I I can't imagine how effective he would have been because he was yeah, already really good kind of doing something he wasn't comfortable doing. All right, finally, we've got Mo Eggers' team. And I, maybe I, I can't think of the Cleveland Cavaliers selecting Anthony Bennett number one overall in the NBA draft, whatever year that was, is laughing at Mo picking D'Antonio Wingfield number one overall here with the third pick of the draft. He also has Steve Logan. I was going to say, if, if, I would have actually taken Steve Logan before D'Antonio okay. Wingfield. Yes, by far. Uh, Jacob Evans, Ruben Patterson, Troy Copain, Jason Maxiel, Devin Downey, and Corey Blunt. I I think Mo did a really good job at the end of his draft, but somehow the early part of his draft is is not very good. Yeah, I'm going to say in a a seven-game series against Chad's team, Chad sweeps and Mo maybe steals one from, uh, from Justin's team. Yeah, I think you're right. His team, his team is definitely the worst by far. Like, how does Troy Copain go in the fifth round, but uh, Lance Stevenson doesn't even get taken? It's a good point. That's a legitimate point. Um, yeah, it's, I, you know, Corey Blunt as a college player, I would say Corey Blunt's NBA career surprised me based on what I saw in college, right? I, I, you know, he was a nice college player, and then to his credit, hung in the league for a long, long time. Um, but not a dominant college player, really good college player. Um, that, that's a, that, yeah, that's a good value pick late. I but, like Jason uh, Maxiel better than Troy Copain. Yeah. I mean, I, Jason Maxiel, Devin Downey to me are the, the best two back-to-back picks in the sixth and seventh round for Mo. Devin yeah, Downey De- is an outstanding find there. I know he didn't play much of his career for UC, but that's a great, great call. Yeah. He, he just was, he, it always felt like Devin Downey played so helter skelter out of control that you just never knew what you were going to get, but he was talented. No question about it. Uh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Um, D'Antonio Wingfield was a talent, right? But I just I, – I, he just never was the guy that I thought he was going to be and never did, right? And it, Danny Fortson was on the board. That's a good point. <laughs> Danny <laughs> Fortson was on the board. Yeah, that's a good call. <laughs> that's, that's where I just can't get over the D'Antonio Wingfield thing no matter what. It's like Danny freaking Fortson. Uh, D'Antonio Wingfield was talented, and that's – Mo was like – Mo did a lot of thinking in this one. He was like projecting him out if he would have reached his potential lane, if he was playing in a different era in a more modern game. He thought he fit better. Uh, I just think he really thought way too long and hard about that. I, I, I'm with I'm, I'm with you, and I guess yeah. If his thought is there's no true post guy, trust me. If you got Danny Fortson, you're getting the ball and you're playing through Danny Fortson in the post. You are doing it. I promise you. Yeah, you'll be all right. Um, I, also, I like the idea because he ended up with Steve Logan with his second pick. I really would have liked to have seen like a Danny Fortson, Steve Logan start yeah. here. To, uh, I think that would have been interesting. You could have gone Nick Van Exel against whoever Justin made his big man. So, uh, All right, I'm going to put you on the spot now. If you had to draft a UK team off the top of your head, and we'll go back to the Rick Pitino era, start of the Rick Pitino era, so 89. Okay. Uh, who is the top guy on your board? at each position. So obviously we can't do a whole draft right now, but if you're making your hot board here of who you're war in the skinny war room, who is the, the guy you're targeting as your top guy at each spot? Right, I'm hoping I'm not going to miss somebody and you can, you can jump in. Please do Rick. If I, if you're like, dude, you're missing this guy and I'll go, yeah, you're right. And I'll do it in position numbers instead of shooting guard, small forward, power forward, yeah. that stuff's antiquated. So at the one, I, I got to go John wall, right? So I, I think it's one of two guys. It's Rondo or wall. And yeah, I would it depends go wall. On, it, yeah, I'd go Wall, and as good a player as Rondo is, and probably on an all-star team, Rondo would fit better just because he doesn't need to score. Um, but Wall just – Wall is just – he's a mercurial talent. So I'm going to go John Wall at the one. I'm taking a stretch here for my, for my two because I don't know if you consider him a two, but he can play it. I'm going Ron Mercer. Okay, I, I was wondering what you're going to do here because the one position where if you're really being strict about positions where you kind of get a, a weaker spot for UK is the shooting guard spot. 
Tony, Tony Delk would be up there too. He, he's the only guy all, I came up with. Yeah, because on an all-star team of guys, Tony shooter. Delk's – yeah, he's going to knock down shots. And by the way, like one of the all-time steel leaders in UK history too, yes. right? I mean, yeah. he's a really yeah, good defender right. too. So right. Tony Delk is a perfect two-way player. I'm not slighting him. He's one of the best UK players of all time. But to me, he's kind of the only guy. I do think there are better talents though. So my thought was maybe I, I take Rondo at point, slide Waddle to two, or I do what you did and, and take someone at small forward and slide like Mercer up to the, the two. I think that could be. Yeah. Well, and based on – and I'm doing this literally off the top of my head, and like I said, jump in if I'm missing somebody. So based on the team, I, I did a team on the top of my head, the five that I would have wanted. Um, at the three, I'm going to take Tayshawn Prince. Yeah, and there's only one other selection here that I think is in the, the running, and, and maybe you even would move him down a spot. But Jamal Mashburn, I think, is in the Well, I'm, I'm, I, he's my Put him four. At the four. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> my, he's my four. So there you go. And then Antonio Davis is the five. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a more modern team too. It fit a little, you know, Mashburn. It could easily be a four, even in a, in a traditional lineup. But it, especially in today's game, where it's a little smaller, a um, little more scoring and skill at the four, Mashburn would be would be perfect there. Um, I love that team. I, you had you had all the same guys that I had at the four. I had Antoine Walker and Boogie Cousins. Yeah. Um, yeah. names there if I'm going more traditional. But then you have a logjam at the three because you have Mashburn, Prince, and Mercer, and I think all three are probably in my top three or four players overall. So um, Anthony Davis to me is, is the best out of all these guys. I think he's no the one I'd want first if I had the first pick. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could argue. Um, and yeah, I, there's, yeah, that, that, it's so cut and dried. I mean, if you were having a backup there, Boogie'd be your backup, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But and, and he's the, he's the far and away one for me and Mashburn's playing somewhere. I don't care where you can play him at the two, if you want. In fact, when he played at Kentucky, when Arkansas was in their heyday of, of 40 minutes of hell pressing, uh, you know, who brought the ball up the floor a lot of times. Jamal Mashburn, because the matchup was they had to guard him with a forward, and they'd clear out and let him bring the ball up the floor, and he'd get him in their offense, and then they get it back to him, and he go score. He was – I'll tell you what, I don't want to say he was an underrated player, and he certainly wasn't underappreciated. He just was such a, a – my, my dad, I was looking through some of these. My dad was a sick Kentucky basketball fan, and he kept score of, of, of just about every game from the 1960s up, but I was looking through some scorebooks, and one of them I just looked at the other day was uh, the 90 – 293 season I guess it was and just some of the games that Mashburn put up you're like wow he had 22 and a half and then you look at maybe another half he'd had six when somebody else would start to take over so I, he was just the guy that always felt like he made he never made the wrong play yeah I mean really the the, the small forward spot here for UK is just extraordinary when you look at those three oh. guys that we talked about and there's a few more that you could bring up through for most teams would be uh, great as well. I mean, Michael Kidd Gilchrist doesn't even enter the conversation, and he was like a dominant, dominant force on a national ch- title team. Right. You know, I mean, not right. scoring, but defensively, right. he's maybe no, the best college defender I've seen. So, yeah, no, no doubt. Um, yeah, no, I, I, that's a good exercise. I, I think uh, for for all you guys, that that was that was a fun exercise. Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that as well. And obviously, when you do something like that uh, with someone like Andy McWilliams, who has such historical knowledge, one, and then two, just passion. For, for the team that he's that he spent so much time around it's fun because you get all the stories you get some things you haven't even heard before uh it, it was a, it was a good time for sure number right. one in the nation number two in their own city <laughs> that's right all right skitty it is time for our favorite part of the podcast hashtag ask any anything where people send me questions topics links whatever from the internet and they uh, get your opinion on them so we'll start here um with a sports related question and guy says settle an argument for my brother and i we were arguing about the hardest thing to do in sports we settled on either hitting major league pitching i.e breaking ball or golfing at a professional level first of all do you agree that those are the two hardest and second of all either way will you tell us which is more difficult to settle our argument yeah i'm gonna go believe it or not playing golf at a professional level and I say that because I, I've hit a fastball in the mid-90s. I, I've hit some pretty good breaking stuff. Um, I, I, and if I can do some of that, look, I, at a major league level, well, I, I mean, I can argue by I hit some major league pitchers back, back in the day that ended up going you – know, they weren't major league pitchers at the time, but they evolved into them and became them. Um, so I think that can be done. Now, consistently, could you hit, you know, above yeah. – That's the thing, Bob. No. Hitting 100 doesn't really cut it. Yeah, but, but he's just asking about doing it. I, I think – I think, yeah, that, that can be done. You know, the old, the old saying is hardest thing to do in sports is hit a round ball with a round bat and hit it square. Right. But yeah, 
Playing golf, I mean, I know a lot of really, really, really good amateur golfers. I've played with them. I've played with a couple of pros, and it's just different, man. Those guys, I, I played with Doug Martin, who's UC's golf coach, and, and Doug um, won a, a tour event, actually. And this, Doug was, was retired. He had back issues, and he was playing in an, in a, in an event um, where he, he wasn't himself physically and went out and shot a 67 like it was nothing, and I thought, Wait a minute, this guy's just screwing around and just shot a 67. Um, I just think golf at a professional level, I, they make it look so easy, Rick, that it's, and it's just not. I mean, it just is not. Well, that's the, that's the old saying, right? You, you foul 10 pitches off and then hit one over the fence, and you're here the next day in the paper. If you uh, foul 10 off in golf, you, you lost. That's right. That's so, a good point. Um, that, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. I kind of agree, although like a, a good breaking ball in Major League for major league pitching is almost untouchable for any normal human being. Yeah. Have you ever heard this? This is a great story. Jeff Bacoro tells it and he swears it's true. Um, cause Jeff goes to the fantasy camp out in Arizona every year where, you know, a a bunch of guys are trying to live their, their, their dreams of, of glory days. And I guess, you know, there's always that, that guy, right. Who's still, he's, he's, he's in shape. He brings his own bag. He looks, he looks the part. And apparently this guy was yapping the whole time and Tom Browning was pitching. And, you know, for these guys like Browning and, and those, they're clowning around, right? They're letting you try to put the ball in play. They're not trying to show you up. Well, this guy's mouthing off. And finally, Browning turns to everybody on the field and says, sit down where you are to his position players. And apparently he threw three sliders that just absolutely made this guy look silly. He didn't touch any of them. And, he, and at that point, even Jeff goes, he goes, you know, you know, these guys are good. And then you see that and you're like, holy cow. And so, yeah, you're right. Some of the, some of the stuff that, that, and it's the thing, but TV doesn't do it justice because you see that breaking ball, and you're like, how did you freeze on that guy? Well, because huh, it started probably behind his earlobe and dropped right over the strike zone. That's why. Well, and the thing is, like, if you, you put a normal guy who isn't, you know, I mean, in shape enough or whatever, willing to do something athletically, but not, not playing baseball right now, into a batting cage against 80-mile-an-hour fastball, he's tipping off most of them. I mean, he's having trouble hitting a lot of an 80-mile-an-hour fastball when he steps in that cage. Now think about it's 84, but it's moving. Yeah, right. Breaking like that. So, like, these aren't slow pitches, even though we consider right. them off-speed pitches, right? right? I mean, right. that's right. It's, a, it's just a different level. I think that's almost impossible for the normal human. And then you, you, you kind of made us interesting when you said, well, it's easier to do, like meaning one time, right? Like just hitting a ball one time is going to be easier than golfing at a professional level. You, yep. you get into interesting conversations like that. But the one thing I would have brought up in terms of like to do at a professional level consistently, like if, so if we're approaching this question from the standpoint of what, what's the easiest job to, to maintain, right? If you get the job, how, how hard is it to keep it? I think NFL kicker has got to be way up on the list. And, and, and here's why I'd say that. It's because there are only 32 of them at any given time, and almost yep. half of them are more stink. Right? I mean, like, half of them are not very good. Most teams are looking for a new kicker, trying to figure something out every single year, and then there's, like, a group that are really good and a group that feel like they're okay. Yeah, I mean, even the guys you don't think are I – mean, I'm going to guess, do you think Randy Bullock's any good? I think he's average. He's like, he's not terrible to the point that you're looking for a new guy immediately. I'm doing this off. I think he's made almost, I know under 40 yards, I think he's made 95% of his kicks with the Bengals. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, he's been, he's been good with the Bengals, but I think it's so much more about just kind of confidence and getting on a hot streak for a while because you see, I mean, like look at Neil Rackers, worst kicker ever for the Bengals for a couple years in a row, and then became like the best kicker in the NFL for the Cardinals. And then kind of faded again. I, these guys go through cycle. I think it is a very difficult thing to do consistently. Well, and just because it, it feels like you really don't notice them until it does come down to that kick that they have to make. And I think there's only a handful of guys that are really good at that have to make field goal. Well, I, that's that's kind of the point. Right? Like, there's so much pressure on it. You've got athletes that are ten times your size, ten times your your amount of athleticism coming at you trying to block it while you're doing you, it. It's a difficult then, setting. And then if you miss, then you got to look at your teammates. We were, we were, I was on a Zoom call with some, some Bengals beat writers and former beat writers. We kind of had a happy hour Monday because we haven't seen each other for a while. And uh, one of them brought up the story in, in Houston a few years ago. It was when actually they had just signed Randy Bullock. It was that Christmas Eve game where Bullock missed the field goal at the end that would have won it. Was this when Pac-Man, and, crushed, Pac-Man crushed him? 
No, Dre crushed him. Where Drake or, okay. Drake or Patrick said, that man, and he points it, has to make that kick. <laughs> he didn't even know his name. That man <laughs> has to make that kick. Uh-huh. And that's what you have to face, too, is that teammate that is just kicked. He's, you know, they just beat the snot out of each other for 60 minutes or 59 minutes and, and 59 seconds. And, and here comes a little guy trotting on the field, and he decides your fate. And it I might mean, be your only opportunity all game. Right, like you might not right. be warm or ready to go, right? You know, I mean, it's just it is a tough situation. I don't think a lot of people would include it because I think almost anyone feels like if you walk out there with your friend right now and he holds one for you, you might be able to kick a thirty yarder through the uprights on occasion. So it's like, oh, it, it can be done, but in an actual NFL game, like to kick a field goal, I think is one of the harder things in sports to do. All right, so let's settle this guy's bet. I'm still going to go playing golf at a, at a professional level. I, I agree with you. I think I would go golf just because. Um, I think there are more guys that can hit major league pitching in some form or fashion than there right. are guys who can golf even close to par. Yeah. That's a good question though. I like it. Um, hopefully one of you guys is happy because one of you guys is now sad because somebody just won a bet. Yeah. And here, here's one that I, I think uh, it, actually we'll, we'll, I'll move on to the next one. It's another sports question before we get to the other one, which I think is, is, is pretty interesting. LeBron and his son, Bronny are all over the front page of ESPN today. This person just sent this in right because I asked on Twitter. Um, do you guys have a problem with ESPN pimping out a high school freshman like that? Um, I guess no, because the name comes with fame and he is a, He's a known prospect. Um, we've done that with with younger players before. Um, I guess I'll I'll say no. It it just comes with the territory. What do you say? I. It does honestly. It does bother me a little bit. Like not to the point that I'm gonna start saying, "Oh, you're exploiting kids," and ESPN needs to change or anything like that. I mean, I don't think it's the biggest deal in the world. I just think it's hilarious because some of these traditional media places like an ESPN will try to hold themselves to the standard or act like this beacon of journalism at times. And then literally you are just running a high school freshman's mixtapes all plastered all over the front page of your website. And LeBron is a known prospect or Bronny, I should say, is a known prospect, but he's not like the best kid in his class. You know what I mean? Like it's not like what, what has happened is, he has become good for business because he is a huge social media star on it's Instagram exactly right. and other things. And so ESPN is using that for page views, which I get it. It's, it's the business. But I do think it is a little messed up when you can't take it away. Like some, if it's not ESPN doing it, there's going to be some Instagram mixtape company over time or hoop mixtape or whatever is the sign of the times that are going to put a video like this out comparing LeBron and Bronny at, at high school and different ages and stuff like that. So uh, it's not like it's going to be eliminated and the kid's never going to have to see it. But I do think for ESPN to be putting it on its front page when the kid prior to this, he was not even in high school and they've done it. Now today when they're doing it, he's at least, you know, he's, he's played his freshman year of high school basketball now, but it still just seems a little bit ridiculous and a little over the top to me to be constantly comparing this kid to his dad, which he's never going to be able to get away from, but taking yeah, that that's step hard. farther and putting him on the front page of your website, multiple stories um, it, 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 with highlights and things like that. I, I do think that's a little weird because you don't typically do that. I mean, if a, yeah. if a guy becomes LeBron James or he becomes OJ Mayo by his junior, senior year, or he becomes Zion Williamson, then you start doing that stuff occasionally. But to do it right now, just because he's LeBron James's son, I don't know. That feels a, a little voyeuristic to me. Yeah, I, I guess the only thing I would say is if, if LeBron s- says something about this and, and ESPN ignores it, then I guess I have a bigger problem with it. But if, if it's up and maybe Bronny looks at it too and goes, hey, this is pretty cool, then okay, I, I have no problem with it. Well, and that's the whole other side of this, right? I mean, the, LeBron, the, the James family has approached this from a business standpoint. I mean, sure. they have never shied away from making Bronny a star and, and Bronny – seems to enjoy all the attention he gets and handles it really, really well. So yeah, again, I'm not going to come down on ESPN and like start firing off tweets at, at people or anything about it. But if it were me making those calls at ESPN, I don't think we would be pursuing that angle as often yeah, as they do. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. All right. And finally, our last ask any anything question says my buddy and I were eating lunch the other day and we made the always dangerous decision to go to white castle and in parentheses, but we work in construction. While eating, we saw one of the most beautiful women either of us have ever seen walk in, stand in line, and order three or four sliders with fries, and she sat down and ate them. 
that got us into a big conversation. So I'll pose the question we were discussing to you guys. Where is the most unlikely spot that you've seen an extremely attractive member of the opposite sex? I was going to say that, that I, I, I kind of, um, I might, I may love this woman. I mean, God love her. Um, boy, that's a good one. So you got I, one off the top of your head. Let me, let me yeah, think. Cause I can think back to the almost this exact same situation for me. And I, I think I tweeted about it. This was years ago um, where it, I was at the uh, golden corral for some reason. I think I've only <laughs> been there like twice in my life, but I was there and there was just an absolute 10 in line. And I was like, I think I tweeted at the time. If you see a female who is beautiful and she's eating at Golden Corral, you probably have to marry her because there's nothing she can do that'll ruin the way she looks at that point. She's already doing the, the most. Like that, although, she is although it wrecking feels her like body she, at the highest level going to Golden Corral. I was, I was just saying, that's what it feels like. I mean, it feels like almost she's like, I don't want to be this beautiful, so I'm going to go to Golden Corral and change my look as fast as I can change it. I, I, but I think she might be immune at that point. If she still looks that – I mean, she's getting a second plate of uh, the, the meatloaf and, and she still looks good. I, I think – She's immune. You, you, you got to marry her. Yeah, I don't have one off the top of my head, but I, 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 that is an interesting conversation because it, 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 White Castle, it always feels like it's one of two things. It is a kind of maybe a lunch option if you're out working or it's for most people, most normal people, it is, a, it is, a, um, it is an after too many cocktails stop on the way home, right? Sure. Um, and I love my, I love my Whiteys. I, I've, I've gotten in my car many a times the next day and looked and gone, oh, I did. I stopped there last night. Oh, gosh, why did I do that? But that's the worst is when you get back in the car the next day and yep. maybe you don't feel the best and then you smell just the onion smell and you're like, oh. Yeah, or, or, or yeah, and that's when you, you feel bad or if you, if you were the passenger, right, and, and you, you, know, you ate them in somebody else's car as they're driving and then he has to take you home the next day or whatever and you're like, oh, man, my bad. Yeah, the whiteys are all over in the back. and Yeah, but, you know. Yeah, it does seem like an unlikely place for an extremely attractive woman to 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 go, right? Well, that sounds I, terrib- and, terribly sexist, but dude, why? Why? I, hey, a, a buddy of mine's girlfriend is extremely attractive, and and they are huge White Castle fans. Um, he's the one that turned me on to the uh, to the chicken ring. She turned me on to the chicken ring. So, um, maybe he saw her for all I know. Oh, that's the thing I was gonna say. I don't think that attractive women don't go to White Castles. I think they right. do, but I think they do it at two a.m. Well, sure. The, the key yeah, to his story is that they were eating lunch, lunch yeah, and lunch. she didn't. The other thing I was going to suggest when I first started reading the story is that she wasn't there for herself, that she was like, you know, an assistant at some business or whatever, or she was the boss at some business and she was buying lunch for other people. And so she was like, you know, going to order it out and take it. But when he said she ordered like three or four and just sat down and ate them right there, I was like, okay, that's a game changer. She's into White Castles, like, yeah, as a habit. Like, she because, eats because lunch I, there. Because here's the thing. If you go there for lunch and you work with other people, you're not getting it off. You can take as many mints and gum and, and, and breath sprays as you want. It ain't coming off because it goes to your stomach and it sits in your stomach. That's there for the rest of the day, man. So you've got to – You know how much of a savage you have to be to sit through the rest of a workday in an office with the onion taste on you? Like no it does, You can't get rid of that. It no. just sticks. No. No, that's why it's the only time to do it is at night. So when you wake up and you you already have morning breath and all that going anyway, and you, 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 you know, it's going it's, it's, it's to hit you in other parts. And that, that's the time to do it. Lunchtime doesn't seem right. So, yeah, I, I'll tell you guys, you, you may have found a gym. You probably should have walked up if you're not married, fellas, and asked for a date. Yeah, I, I uh, didn't they, – they, they didn't say anything about that, which is probably good that they weren't propositioning her inside uh, White Castles while she's just trying to have a little business lunch. Um, <laughs> but – also god bless these guys for working construction it was like i mean if this was in the last week or two it's probably been 80 plus and sunny almost every day um if they were working outside so i'm sure they felt great about three or four p.m tip of the cap to you guys and uh i'm glad you 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 got got a little lunchtime entertainment there you famously once on a, a podcast you you did with uh tom gamble mentioned that you had like a a uh, stomach bug cure of eating white castles which is one of the most disgusting things i think i've ever heard in my life oh dude no i'm telling you if you want to get cleaned out you could get yourself about six or seven of those things on at night and by the next day by about noon or one o'clock you'll be a new person God is my witness. You'll be a you'll be a changed person. Shout out to my guy Dan. I did that just for him. He brings that story say, up to me once a month, probably. You don't need any of that fiber stuff or metamucil or anything else, man. Just get you six or seven whiteies at <laughs> night after a few beers, and you will be a changed person. I, I guarantee it. That's <laughs> just flat out disgusting. It is, but it's true. No, I promise you, it's true. So there we go. Maybe that's what she needed. God love her. Well, you know what? That might be it. Maybe she was just a little backed up. 
Yep, exactly. You're backed up. It it, it'll, it'll flush you out. Um, Even the hot it, people get backed up from time that's to time. Right. All right. All right, Rick, any final thoughts? I, I think that does it. That, um, that about sums it all up right there. I, I, you know what? I do have now that I got to go back to the, to the last topic. <laughs> you just thought of, you thought of one, huh? <laughs> I did. And, and so it, it's not that somebody walked in and, and strange. There was a friend of a coworker back in, in my 20s um, who she was a couple years younger and just, just beautiful. I mean, just a knockout. So I, I, we, we all went for a beer one night and she came with us and I just kept, I said, I said, your sister's beautiful. I'm, Holy cow. So she goes, you want to talk to her? So I just was. I went over and talked to her for a little bit, and I don't even know how we got on the topic. The topic turned to bowling, and she told me what a good bowler she was. I'm like, she's about 20, maybe 21 years old at the time. I'm like, no, you're too hot to be a bowler. So she took me up on a challenge, and we went and bowled against each other. And I kept thinking, how is something that pretty, that that could have a bowler? It's impossible. So You know what? That that's to, actually that a really good one. one. Like, that's a stereotype for sure, but it's also 100% right. accurate. I mean, there are, there are not hot bowlers, male or female. Right. For the most part, that's true. But you see a 10 at the bowling alley and yeah, I mean, you hit the jackpot. (laughs) Bowling alley is a really good one too. Yep. There we go. So there's, there's that. So I did have the final thought on that. Rick, uh, tell those people to keep those questions coming. I love them. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. For Rick Brewing, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition.